The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 44 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. During the month of December, from Episode 43 to 47, We're talking with survivors who are making fitness fun again. I help people to get moving again, and sometimes we just need to switch up what we're doing or find a new challenge, especially when we're just starting back. Sometimes it's easier to start with something we've never experienced before and have no expectations of what it's supposed to look like. My goal for this month is to flip the idea of exercise as something daunting and make it something fun maybe even a little social, safely, of course. The important thing is that you want to stay in the game. In keeping with our new and fun ways to get moving, I'm excited to introduce my guest this week, Wendy Golick. She's a breast cancer survivor and regional program manager with Casting for Recovery. Welcome, Wendy. I'm so excited to have you here in this second episode on our fun fitness alternatives. I know fitness is definitely part of your story, and later on in our chat, we'll talk about casting for recovery. I'm really looking forward to learning more about that organization and all the great work that you're doing there. But first, I would love to have you just share your story, your cancer story, and let us know kind of where you're at with that. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm uh, tickled to... Uh, join you and also represent Casting for Recovery to your listeners. My story is probably not a unique one, but it's my story. I had my first mammogram at the age of 20. They found lumps in in my annual physical. And at that time here in Southern Vermont, the closest um, radiation site was in Claremont, New Hampshire. So I got in my car and drove to Claremont, and I realized I had no idea where the hospital was. So uh, as a 20-year-old, I followed the big blue H signs and got myself to the hospital. Um, Thankfully, there was nothing there. It was just uh, the discovery that I had the lumpy bumpies, very dense tissue. So that put a scare in me, of course. Um, my grandmother, um, my paternal grandmother had had breast cancer, uh, but she lived to be, um, 101. So she may have been, she may have had the same lumpy bumpies and in the forties, they didn't recognize it as that. So I went through my twenties and when I turned 30, I decided I was going to get an annual mammogram. That real, um, that really scared me as 20, as a 20 year old. So I decided to have annual mammograms starting at 30. I would say probably mid thirties, I started to have callbacks and, um, with the extra screening of the little cup, which was, um, always quite excruciating and, um, uncomfortable. So I was 10 years ahead of what Everybody recommends that when a woman hits 40, they start to have annual mammograms, but I chose to make that decision for myself. I went through blissfully through 30s and 40s, um, 
getting callbacks, going, knowing full well that it was most likely nothing. Then when I turned 51, I got the callback. And uh, that time they gave me an ultrasound, which was different from previous years. And I was sitting outside waiting for the ultrasound after the extra mammogram. And there was a young gal sitting next to me who also was in the exact same boat, um, was waiting for an ultrasound. And um, she was incredibly worried uh, because her mother had been diagnosed and her grandmother. So I spent, you know, five minutes with her and trying to calm her down and what have you. Um, Got into the ultrasound, did my ultrasound, sat and waited. And then the nurse pulled me in, the nurse navigator. And I was sitting there and I kept saying to Shannon that that young gal who I'd been sitting with was very concerned. And would she make sure that um, she give her some extra special treatment and calm her down and whatever. And Shannon said, but Wendy, I'm talking to you. We need to set you up for a biopsy. There's something that's not quite uh, right. I sat there and I was floored again, thinking that this was, you know, one of those routine callbacks that I've been experiencing for 20 odd years, not thinking anything beyond. So this was most likely a Monday or Tuesday. I got my biopsy on the following Monday. And Shannon told me, she goes, you will receive a call this afternoon. I think it was. And she goes, if I call you, uh, it's most likely benign, but I will be talking to your doctor, your primary ahead of time, because um, I wanted to let him know as well. But if he calls you, then um, it's cancer. So I was sitting there trying to work, you know, doing my job and I get a phone call and it was Shannon. I thought, oh, thank God. It's benign. I'm all set. And she said, Wendy, your doctor asked me to call you because we need to take you to the next step. You do have cancer. And at that point, I I didn't know what to say. Um, she very graciously hung up the phone and she said, I we need to talk little bit further. She goes, I don't want to talk to you right now. So she wanted to call me back. Um, and I suggested calling me in the morning and she said, no, I want to talk to you tonight. So I gave her my home phone number and she called me. And at that point in time, I not quite sure what happened for the next couple of hours. I was just, um, there. So that evening, um, she called and in those days I didn't have a cell phone and couldn't put things on speakers. So I'm holding the handset in between my husband and I, and she um, explained to me what the next steps were, the meeting with the um, surgeon and going on from there. They had, luckily they had a couple of surgeons at our local hospital, which is not um, usually the case because it is a small regional hospital. Um, she suggested one and she said, and you're very lucky that there is another one in case the one I'm sending you to um, is not uh, a fit for you. And I, you know, my first thought was, well, why wouldn't it be a fit for me? You know, doctors are all knowing. And she said, you'll get it when you get there. So I get there. 
I have this incredible nurse that meets me at the doorway and brings me in. Her name is Lisa. And she is beyond kind. And, you know, my husband and I are practically shaking. And um, in walks this incredibly gorgeous blonde who is my surgeon. And I just looked at her and I was like, I finally took a breath. And I felt that I didn't need to look at the other surgeon. I was, I was in the right hands. So she, um, you know, suggested or uh, gave me another MRI to make sure that um, everything was in its right spot and where it needed to be. Um, then we went around um, scheduling and we had a vacation coming up and my husband wanted me to have the surgery before vacation so I could relax. And I said, actually, I don't want that. I want the surgery afterwards. And the doctor never looked at my husband when I, when that decision was being made, she was strictly focused on me. And I appreciated that. That was another check in the box of what have you. So I went on vacation. I came back the next morning. Um, we flew home on a Monday and the surgery was Tuesday morning. And in I went again, scared out of my mind. I'd never had a surgery before, never been in the hospital, etc. And what was the surgery? It was a lumpectomy, but I needed to have uh, the sentinel node biopsy with the shots of dye, I guess it is, um, nuclear medicine or what have you that tracks the uh, flow. And uh, for those that have had that, it's um, a unique experience and not, again, particularly pleasant. But that wonderful nurse that I met, I asked her if she would be willing to come and join me because I knew my husband would have a really hard time sitting on the bed with me while I went through that. And she was waiting for me in the room. So that was, again, my reminder that I was in the right place. So I had the three shots. I went off um, on my merry way and uh, came back with little less of me. But thankfully, the part that was missing was the part that needed to get out. Um, and I had uh, three lymph nodes removed. So thankfully it had not spread. So I went home and very nicely was taken care of by my husband um, who spent um, a good day by my side, knowing to leave me when I needed to be alone and being there when I needed. So the next journey of course was fine, was meeting the um, radiation oncologist and then the, the, oncologist. Um, so there was a possibility I was going to get um, chemo due to my age. So I had the oncologist mm -hmm. test. <laughs> and uh, thankful. And as she put it, she goes, you're young, we want you to hang around. So yeah, uh, I heard that so many times. Yeah. Because of your age. Because of your age. And yeah. And I had my Oncotype DX test and waited the week for the results. And of course, you know, was thinking about losing my hair and how I didn't have to worry about dealing with my hairdresser who was a 
a prickly soul and thinking, my God, I could have like eight months away from her. <laughs> and um, then the results came back that said I didn't need to have chemo, but I was slated for the radiation with um, uh, six weeks. So off I went. I did that. Um, it was a good six weeks after my surgery when I started the radiation with the tattooing, etc. Um, I finished the radiation in early August. I'll tell you August 1st. I started the next step, of course, was two years on tamoxifen, which was horrific. I had some major joint issues. Um, the hot flashes were indescribable. I remember sitting at my desk at Casting for Recovery in a in my office in July, and I had my feet on a, you know, the cooler packs that you put into, or those ice packs that you put into a cooler. Yes. Had my bare feet on that with a towel in between, um, because the, the the heat it was it was ridiculous. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever wear a sweater again. I know. <laughs> I mean, I was in my office at times in. December with a camisole on and my coworkers are like up to here with, you know, heavy. I walked yeah. into a meeting one day. I had, now I park my car in my garage at home. So it's not as cold, but it gets reasonably chilly here in Virginia in December. And it was probably 30 degrees outside. And I left my house without a coat with a sleeveless shirt on, slacks, walked into my meeting through a parking lot outside. <laughs> we came out, my girlfriend's got like two scarves, her like heavy wool coat. And I'm like, la la, no jacket, nothing like sweating. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that first Christmas or the next Christmas and I, we were in my house and I have a wood stove and everybody's sitting there like this freezing. And my husband goes, we have to turn on the wood stove. I was like, please don't, please. Cause it's right next to the dining room table. And I was walking around holding people's hands and just warming them up. And, but we had to put the wood stove on and needless to say, I went upstairs and changed into a, a sleeveless top. Yeah. And I think I put sandals on because that was the only way. I completely understand. So <laughs> you took tamoxifen for two years. Was that the prescribed time that they wanted you to take it? Um, it was because I got Fomara for five years after that. Oh, okay. So you switched yeah. to an AI after that? Yes. Gosh. Because again, at 51, they weren't quite sure where I was in the menopause and right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I did find the miracle drug of gabapentin. Hallelujah for gabapentin. That was the only thing that really helped me with my hot flashes and allowed me to sleep at night. So um, thank you, Dr. Ives, for forcing me to take it. So that's kind of my actual... Um, journey as far as from diagnosis to uh, radiation. I, but, you know, the first mammogram after that is, 
absolutely terrifying. And two years later, I got uh, was at a mammogram that uh, sent up a red flag, and so I got another biopsy, another three hour, three days of lost sleep, another wondering when, if, what would happen. I knew that I'd had radiation, so I couldn't have radiation again. That meant chemo. So all of that going through my mind. And um, thankfully, it was the after effects of radiation treatment. Um, yeah. As someone once very aptly told me, it, it may end, but it still could affect you. So yes. So still um, going through all of the, um, you know, annual check-ins, um, getting to the point next year will be 10 years. So now. Congratulations. Thank you. So now I'm going to not see the oncologist anymore. I'm just going to see the surgeon in my primary. And if I can only tell you, I am scared to death because I am just so worried if I don't have that extra, what have you. So she said to me, she's wonderful. Um, she said to me, she goes, I am still your oncologist. I am not your annual oncologist. And the funny thing is that you have to realize that because we're in a small area here, that oncologist has taken care of my brother-in-law, my father-in-law, and my mother-in-law. So as she says, I don't want another family member in my practice. So let's, um, hopefully this is it with that family. And um, I hope it will continue to be that way. But as all cancer survivors know, the shoe could drop in a heartbeat. Yes. And I love that your surgeon, you still see your surgeon annually. Yes. You keep up on your regular checkups. Yes. Because I absolutely understand the, the anxiety yeah. around not having those appointments. I always find it curious when people are excited when those appointments come to an end. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally no. cool with that. I'm totally cool with having my 8 million appointments. Yeah. I, um, you know, and it's so hard. I don't think people really understand that once your treatments are over, like your radiation treatment, the, the five, seven years of of medication is equally a treatment and um but you're with less support yeah well that's what I was getting at the people just naturally assume that since you're not physically going to the hospital that all is well and you know you can get back to whatever normal is and um no it's it's always there always in the back of your mind um and that's why I'm so conscious of my father died of um, melanoma. And so I go annually, if not twice a year, to the dermatologist to have stuff removed, checked, whatever. I get my eyes checked every year. I, it's all of that. And just because I want to know that if something were to happen, that I've done everything I possibly can do to get me to that spot I've taken I've checked everything off 
Yeah, I have um I have an appointment on Friday to talk with my GI guy about colonoscopy because once we have that cancer, you know, diagnosis, it our age sort of becomes other than hearing how young we are every time we come in. Um okay. <laughs> like the guidelines kind of slide away a little bit, although they have started to lower the the age for that. But yeah, I am a, I am a huge advocate of checkups. And I had someone at an event that I was at in January, back when we could gather yeah. groups. Uh, <laughs> and he said, but I just don't want to know. And I said, but what, what, what don't you want to know? Like you look healthy. If something comes up, like it's going to be easy to deal with. And like, why do we not want to know? I don't like, please know, please want to know. Yeah. Yeah. I had my first um, colonoscopy six weeks after my lumpectomy. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was determined if there was anything I wanted it out. So and then needless to say, of course, there were polyps. So now I'm on the every five year cycle. And I just had my third one in September. Yes, it's there's the two things that we've now talked about melanoma and colon cancer. When we've had a breast cancer diagnosis, those two things, we are at a little bit elevated risk. So but there are also things that we can pretty easily i i also see my dermatologist once or twice a year cuz we're both you're only hearing our voices but we're both pretty light skinned um so when you're fair it's our risk is that much more elevated when it comes to sun damage so yeah yeah Important things as much as i love the sun i do spend time in it but i am covered from head to toe and, and with um, sunscreen and what have you. But yes, I am very conscious of, yeah. Yeah, my my husband teases me that my um, bathing suit attire is like 1940s prude. I have long sleeves. I'm always in a rash guard, shorts, <laughs> swim shorts. Like I'm completely covered because if, if I wasn't, I would be burnt to a crisp. Yeah. So. Yeah, believe it or not, my grandmother... My paternal grandmother is was born in Java in Indonesia, so she was uh, dark skinned, and uh, it definitely did not make it to my generation. <laughs> <laughs> I would have not thought that at all. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk more about casting for recovery. So stay okay. with us. Hi, Jen here. I hope you're enjoying the show. When I finished treatment, I discovered survivorship was way more challenging than I ever expected it to be. There are a lot of things no one prepares you for. I attended one support group meeting and knew that was not for me. The more people I talked with, the more I realized I was not alone. This podcast is a forum for people to share their cancer stories from start to present. And my Facebook group is a gathering space for people to find positive inspiration on the not-so-positive days. In a community of people who understand the challenges of this journey. 
So come on over and join the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and be part of the conversation. When you see the question, how did you hear about us? Be sure to mention this podcast episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back. I'm here with Wendy, and we've just been having such a great conversation. You just pluck at so many of my heartstrings. So many of the things that you were sharing in your story are truths that we are definitely not all talking about. Like my Facebook group is titled Surviving is Just the Beginning because we think, oh, I'm done with treatment. Like everything should go back to, you know, quote unquote normal. And then we're a little surprised to find out that it doesn't. And we're navigating this whole new place. Um, While we were off air, we were talking a little bit about support groups. And I know for me that I went to a meeting and I didn't really feel like I was in the right room uh, for the place that I was in in my journey. And I think that's where organizations like Casting for Recovery are so beneficial because they both get us moving in fun and new ways, which is our theme for December. But they also give us that access to other people who are on this same journey and maybe in different places on the journey or have had different components to their journey. So. I am so excited to learn more about Casting for Recovery. And I was noticing that you had joined the staff of Casting for Recovery before you had even attended your first, um, your first retreat. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your journey with them and just more about the organization. Sure. Well, I too had a support group um, experience. I went to one support group. Of course, I went the night of my last radiation treatment, which probably in my defense was not maybe the perfect timing for that. I went to a support group and I met the women there. There was about seven and they were very interested in what I went through. And so I explained it to them. And then I realized that most of the women in the group were 10 to 15 years out. And so their journeys were not at all like my journeys. And I realized that I was not really getting anything from this group. And I knew that if I came back a second time, I would probably be again restating my journey to the new ones that arrived that time. So a very coincidence, I was in a job that I was not crazy about and saw an ad for Casting for Recovery uh, to join their team in Manchester, Vermont. And I jumped at the chance. I applied and got the job. So this was in 2012, so a year after my uh, diagnosis. I started working and um, we had a executive director change. So the interim director was uh, one of our board of trustees. And he said to me, in all of his wonderfulness, you said, Wendy, I really want you to apply for a retreat. And I looked at him and said, no, I want to give it to 
you know, someone else out there. And I realized yet again, um, I was not putting myself forward uh, first, or at least forward. And I did sign up in uh, 2000 and for the 2014 retreat in Stowe, Vermont. And I got picked. And the reason why I'm saying I got picked is we pool all of our applicants for each retreat. And then we randomly select 14 women because it's limited to 14 participants. And then we select 20 alternates as well, just in case life happens, family reunions, weddings, graduations, um, treatments, um, surgeries, etc. So the 20 alternates are essential. And off I went to the Stowe Vermont retreat. Um, and knowing the other side of the equation, um, knowing casting for recovery, I thought I was going to be in kind of a unique position. But what I realized was I am a breast cancer survivor, just like the 14 other women that were there. Um, the staff, I knew the retreat leader and two of the other staff members. Nobody else knew who I was. The participants, I didn't even tell them who I was. Um, I felt in, felt important to do that simply because I didn't want them to think that I got preferential treatment and that maybe their friend had applied and didn't get in. So I kept that to myself. I embraced everything that they had to offer, every little bit. The only downside to that entire retreat experience was that my roommate snored. So <laughs> this is something that happens often at retreats because we have roommates. So I did mention something to the, the psych, uh, psychosocial on the team about that. And she said, what would you like me to do? And I said, nothing. I can do it for another night. I really liked my roommate. She didn't know she snored because she lives alone. So how could she have put that on her participant information form? She didn't know. So anyway, um, she and I have actually run into each other on a couple of other, a couple of occasions. So we've chatted and had fun. Um, so off I went on this wonderful, incredible weekend and I got hooked on fly fishing. So my retreat was in um, June and my birthday is in October and my wonderful husband bought me a rod and a reel and line. So I was so shocked and so excited and was on my way to being what I call right now an intermediate beginner. And I'm an intermediate beginner because I know how to string a rod and kind of know what a fly looks like. But other than that, I'm kind of a rank beginner. So casting for recovery is uh, two and a half days. Um, it's staffed with 11 to 12 incredible women who give of their time. Included in this team, and I'm going to use the Vermont team as an example because um, that's my home team, but yet I do oversee all of New England and the Northeast, I should say. Um, we have two uh, medical facilitators. One is a breast surgeon and one is a physician's assistant in a in the oncology center, um, the cancer center. And we have two psychosocials um, who are both trained in um, 
meditation, uh, group therapy, etc. Also included are four fly fishing instructors who are there to teach all of the women the basics. So you learn about knots, you learn about how to string a rod, you learn about flies, what fish eat. Then you learn about how to cast. You're, le- you're taught a couple of different casts that you can use, basic casting. You don't need to learn everything the first time. And then we also talk about equipment, what you need to have as a basic um, outfit. And we go to one extreme. We, I literally model myself. I put every piece of whatever possible on my body so you can choose and whatever. And I do a strip tease. And then um, we talk about what you need to get started. So during that week, weekend, you learn about fishing. You learn, you have a medical education talk with, um, with the medical team and the psychs. And this is usually an hour, hour and 15 minutes of questions that you may have that they can answer, things that you can bring forward to them, um, things that you can talk about peer with your peers right there in the room. And we do put out a basket for questions ahead of time. So if you have any question and you don't want to ask it during the group, the medical facilitators will bring that into the group and they themselves will have some questions that um, they will bring up. They kind of prime the basket with questions. Nice. Um, Yeah, it's phenomenal what they asked. But it's not just limited to that hour and 15 minutes or so. If you have another question that you don't feel comfortable in putting it forth in the group, you can certainly pull them aside at a later time um, and just say, you know, do you have a minute for me? I have a couple of questions. And that happens a lot. And it's encouraged. Yeah. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, a couple other people on the team, one would be the retreat leader, who is uh, someone that keeps us on time. And then the other one is the hospitality person, someone to just be everywhere, helping out, helping out with casting, helping out with making sure everybody gets to the one room or whatever meeting occurrence and whatever. And then on Sunday or the last day of the retreat, you're going to go out to the river to learn what you're doing, what you've, you're going to use what you just learned. So at that point, we have 14 people. So you each have your own guide for two and a half hours. And these again are all volunteers. They can be men. And I have to tell you, that's the most fun to come down the little bank to the river and seeing 14 women all spread out with 14 guides. And if you catch a fish, incredible. If you don't, who cares? You had a blast. You're out there working your, your magic and it's, it's incredible. And the joy and the laughter and the tears when we have to say goodbye at the end is just I don't know. It's It gives me goosebumps whenever I think about it. And because we accept applications, um, our applications don't put anything on them other than, don't include anything other than name, address, and telephone number and how to get in contact with you. 
we have no idea how long anybody's been in treatment, out of treatment, and what have you. So we have a major mix of ages, um, diagnosis, length out of diagnosis, surgery, and what have you. And all ages is the big thing. To date, our youngest uh, participant at a casting for a recovery retreat was 22. Wow. And our oldest was 80. Early 80s. So, and if I can only say, we're starting to see younger and younger women. Yeah, I think that's across all types of cancer, unfortunately. Yeah. So one of my favorite people within the um, the Vermont family was uh, diagnosed at 29. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how many retreats are there across the country for Casting for Recovery? I know 2020 has been a weird year, um, but right. on an average year, how many retreats? In 2021, we're being very optimistic. We are uh, have on the schedule 52 retreats. Um, they are all across the country. I encourage people to check out our website and there is a tab that says retreats to find one that's near you. Um, and our recommendation, of course, is to apply to the one closest to you. It, if there, if you are in a state that doesn't have a retreat, there are some around you. So check that out. And if, if you're questioning as to where to apply, send us an email. We'll help you out and figure out uh, what's the best. And uh, we've already started. Uh, our applications are open for next year. So that's already been, um, it's already in the works. So we're accepting applications now. In 2020, unfortunately, we had to cancel all of our retreats. And that there were 55 of them. So that was um, painful and um, a real big bummer. But what we decided to do in place of that was, um, and we kind of switched gears. We are a small organization, so we're very nimble. We have the ability to be very flexible. Um, we listen to what our participants are telling us through our evaluations, and we can tweak things. If there's something that's happening in the early retreats that uh, we may not have recognized as being an issue or we need more of or less of, we can change that for future retreats within the year. So this year, what we did was we focused on our alumni who, as we were talking about, with support and needing uh, the continual um, survivorship, you know, issues, et cetera. So we did, um, we did three series this fall. We did a nutrition series. Nice. We did a mindfulness piece. At, uh, the th- series has three. Um, so we did a nutrition, uh, mindfulness, and then go fish, a refresher course. And we just finished the go fish last week. So, um, and we sent out, we did the first one in October, the second one in November, and then we did this one or September, October, November. So the, the, um, Feedback has been incredible. The alumni have been uh, very appreciative of the information. Um, the go- I've watched all three of them, and I learned something from all three of them. Um, and it was sent out to over 7,000 of our alumni across the country. 
And these individuals had a chance to watch the um, video um, at their leisure. They didn't have, it wasn't a specific time and got to see their, um, these, uh, these women who had presented the material just talking about their, their part of the equation, um, and help our alumni. That's fantastic. You had mentioned, um, to me earlier as well, alumni events. How often do you, I know in this particular case, this was kind of a pivot for our current state of the world. Right, <laughs> um, right. On a, in the, during the course of a regular year, do you have alumni events? We as an organization don't organize the uh, alumni events. We, um, we have, uh, our focus is on the actual retreats. But programs, but pro- each of the programs um, that hold the retreats will have alumni event of gatherings um, that they themselves uh, organize and, um, you know, facilitate, whether it be, you know, a potluck, although potluck probably is not on our radar anytime soon, you know, meeting at a state park or a town park for a picnic or something. Um, or fishing. So, so that's actually a, a great lead into how do the retreats actually come together? Um, we talked about how to be a participant and kind of what the retreats look like, but what is the mechanism for actually delivering the retreats? I know you all in, from a, a corporate perspective, kind of facilitate that, but then you've quite large volunteer teams that are putting things together behind the scenes as well, right? We have 1,800 volunteers across the country to do what we do with, we cannot do what we do without them. Um, they're essential. Um, these are individual, our retreat teams are all women, but that does not mean that our programs are all women. Um, we do have some uh, male program coordinators um, across the country. Each um program to start, it takes a good year and a half to two years to bring a program from start to their first retreat. And what that all involves is um, fundraising. We do not charge any of our participants a penny to attend, and we provide them with lodging, food, all of their fly fishing equipment that they need during the weekend. So it takes a good two years to uh, fundraise, um, find the team, not necessarily, um, you know, you need a program coordinator first, someone who's going to spearhead the efforts locally. Um, they get major support from uh, the program, regional program managers that we, we have four in um, Casting for Recovery. One of them is myself. Um, and as I mentioned, I oversee uh, the Northeast. Um, so that person works closely with their regional program manager on fundraising, um, which could include grants. Um, it could include events. Um, it could include init- um, individual donors. It could be presenting, making a presentation at a service organization, whether it be the Rotary or Lions Club or what have you. TU chapters, travel unlimited chapters are very helpful with us, uh, not necessarily just monetarily, but also with volunteer staff. 
uh, river helpers, those folks that help us on the last day. So as I said, it takes a good year and a half to two years. I would say I would err on the caution of having longer time. But building the team, those fly fishing instructors, finding them, the medical facilitators, the psychosocial facilitators, all of the components that go into putting on a retreat, uh, location, the venue for the, um, for the retreat, the fishing for the retreat. How close is it from the venue to the fishing? All of these uh, items are components are essential in making it a successful first retreat. But within the organization of Casting for Recovery, we have all of the knowledge and guidance and what have you to make this a successful endeavor. We have a couple, you know, and again, you always worry about volunteer burnout. So you don't necessarily want to have a program get to the point where they're all exhausted and can no longer continue uh, because they're just exhausted. Um, So by us helping with volunteer uh, training and volunteer, um, you know, finding those folks that can essentially help this program be even more successful going forward is a good part of our jobs as well. Um, 100% of our participants would recommend this to someone else. Um, Amazing. 98% felt that they could include more outdoor activities in their lives. That's amazing as well. I'm a huge proponent of that. I know. And 98% said the CFR program improved their quality of life. I mean, we've had some participants so scared of dying or and not even, you know, being stopped in their lives that they forget about living. And then um, 96 improved their sport uh, support base and 92% said they learned something new about living with breast cancer. Um, so for us to talk about testing for recovery today, hopefully you're hearing in my voice the, the pride of what these 1,800 volunteers do and my nine colleagues do um, to make this an opportunity for so many. Yes, your passion for this absolutely shines through for sure. I'm hoping that I can find some ways to help you and get involved myself because I love being outdoors and the water and all all those things. So thank you so much for sharing about Casting for Recovery and sharing your story. I I think 92% of your people said they learned something new about survivorship. And I feel like every time I have a conversation with a survivor, I add to my toolkit as well. So thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing about your organization today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm so grateful for um, this time and the opportunity to just sing the praises of our volunteers and um, please check us out. Apply. You can only go once, but apply. You can't win it if you're not in it.
right? That is absolutely true. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wendy, for sharing your story and the fantastic work that Casting for Recovery is doing here in the United States. I love talking with survivors and hearing their stories. There's always something new to learn. I could really empathize with Wendy as she was sharing, talking with the young woman in the waiting room and advocating for her to get a little extra love and care that day, not really taking in the perspective that she might need a little extra love and care that day as well. So often I hear people downgrade their experiences, and I do it as well. Sometimes that results in us opting out of services or programs that we could really benefit from because we think that someone else might benefit more. I love doing this podcast because every story is so important and has value we can all learn from one another. Wendy shared about the amazing work that Casting for Recovery does and how inspiring and impactful her own retreat participation was for her in her life. Like Wendy said, you got to be in it to win it. So if you're a breast cancer survivor, or you know one, regardless of how far out of treatment they are, send them over to the Casting for Recovery Retreats page. The link can be found in the resources and show notes. I just submitted my application for the 2021 event closest to me. It's really easy. Just remember, you have to apply for the location closest to your home and you can only apply to attend one retreat. So go now and get in it to win it. Then come on over to the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. And let Wendy and I know that you did your application. If you've been wanting to get moving, but you're just not sure what you want to try, come on over to the Facebook group, again, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and look for the coffee chat post to schedule some time on my calendar. That way we can chat. That's our episode for this week. Thanks for listening and have a great week.